Good evening, everyone. My name is Arkan Fung, and I'm the acting dean of the Harvard Kennedy School. And I'm pleased to welcome you tonight to this forum, a conversation with Stephen Breyer. Before I introduce tonight's guests, I want to thank the Center for Public Leadership and the Institute of Politics for sponsoring this event. We are delighted tonight to welcome Justice Stephen Breyer to the Harvard Kennedy School. Justice Breyer is a graduate of the Harvard Law School and was a professor here and lecturer for 27 years. During that time, he also had a professorship at the Harvard Kennedy School from 1977 to 1980. Perhaps it was here that he developed his abiding interest in the problems of regulation. Now, you may think that you don't care about Justice Breyer's views of regulation, but you should. If you're unhappy about how crowded airplane seats are these days and how difficult it is to get one and you, why you're always in a middle seat, perhaps it's because of Justice Breyer. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, if you're happy, and many of you are not old enough to be happy about this, but if you're happy that air travel is so affordable now compared to what the astronomical prices of a few de decades ago, you can also thank Justice Breyer. For both of these features of air travel are a consequence of airline deregulation, and Stephen Breyer was a central figure in that transportation sea change when he was working with Senator Ted Kennedy. Justice Breyer has held many prominent legal positions over his career. In 1973, he served as Assistant Special Prosecutor in the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. After serving 10 years as a judge in the United States Court of Appeals in the First Circuit, he served as its, its Chief Judge from 1990 to 1994. He has also served as a member of the Judicial Conference of the United States from 1990 to 94, and just and of the Sentencing Commission from 1985 to 19. 89. After a nomination from President Clinton, Stephen Breyer took his seat as Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court on August 3rd, 1994. Justice Breyer has maintained an incredible pace of intellectual production despite these many demanding judicial roles. He's published nine books, at least by my count, including most recently uh, Making Our Democracy Work in 2011 and tonight's the uh, topic of tonight's discussion, The Court and the World, American Law in the New Global Realities, just this year. The Court and the World is an extended meditation on how judges, American judges, U.S. judges, should respond to the globally interdependent reality in which the United States now finds itself. Justice Breyer looks backward for historical insight into how past courts have dealt with challenges such as national security and emergency, but perhaps even more importantly, he encourages American judges to engage in an international conversation so that they can learn more about the foreign realities that are implicated in many US judicial decisions and about how international experiences might inform better US legal decisions on our questions. Tonight's discussion will be co-moderated by Professor David Gergen and Judge Nancy Gertner. David is co-director of the Center for Public Leadership and a professor of public service here at the Kennedy School. He served as an advisor to four U.S. presidents of both parties, we're proud of that, and he's senior political analyst for CNN. Judge Gertner is a lawyer, advocate, and writer widely known for her work in the areas of gender equality, civil rights, forensic science, sentencing, and human rights. In 1993, President Clinton appointed her to the U.S. District Court for Massachusetts, and she served there as a federal judge until her retirement in, from the bench in 2011. That move was bad for the federal bench, but very good for Harvard University, because Judge Gertner is now a senior lecturer at the Harvard Law School. 
I'll now turn the event over to David and Nancy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Arkan. Thank you. Thank you. And Justice Breyer, welcome home. Thank you. We're delighted <laughs> to see you at the Kennedy School. We hope that you'll come back early and often. Uh, we thought we, after Arkan's introduction, we'd actually like to do something a little more serious because this is such a serious book, uh, just as a further part of your introduction. Strike it up here. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welcome back, everybody. In just a moment, I'll be sitting down with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer to talk about his new book, The Court and the World. It's an honor to welcome him to the Late Show. In my opinion, this man is easily one of the top nine Supreme Court justices working today. <laughs> now. For the small segment of my audience out there who hasn't argued in front of the Supreme Court, let me fill you in. The highest federal court in the land is the Supreme Court. It's just like a regular court, but with sour cream and salsa. The court is the third branch of American government. The other two branches are not speaking to each other. <laughs> of course, there are nine justices, both to ensure that there can never be a tie and also so they are always ready to field a softball team. <laughs> the justices play a powerful role in our democracy. They're the final interpreters of our Constitution, and their decisions cannot be overturned even by the president. The only person with more power is a Kentucky County clerk. <laughs> not sure. Not sure why the founders put that in there. And until tonight, Justice Breyer has been the least known of the current Supremes. In fact, a recent survey claimed that only 3% of Americans could identify him. The other 97% think he's Mr. Burns. <laughs> so let's peel back the robe and meet the man inside the moo. Stephen Breyer was educated at Stanford, Oxford, and Harvard University, which means he has accrued some of the world's most prestigious student loan debt. <laughs> While in college, the future justice was arrested for underage drinking, which is a lesson to you college kids. Keep out of trouble, or you might end up with a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. <laughs> Breyer was nominated to the Supreme Court by President Clinton, and in case this is a rerun airing after January 2017, let me clarify, President Bill Clinton. Over the years, just in case. Over yeah. the years, Justice Breyer has become known for his fiery dissents. In a 2007 dissent, he wrote, the majority opinion distorts precedent and misapplies the relevant constitutional principles. And in a 2011 consumer protection case, Breyer tore into the majority saying, what rational lawyer would have signed on for the possibility of fees stemming from a $30.22 claim? And in his 2003 dissent in Ewing v. California, he just included a photocopy of his middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> and tonight, it's my honor to sit down with his honor. And if it's anything like the other times I've talked to judges, it's going to end with 200 hours of community service. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's very good. Three percent. If he'd asked you about that, 
that three three percent name recognition. What would you have told him? Not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I did. If I had to say something serious, which I thought about this from time to time, and it's true, and it is serious. Have, have you seen the movie Argo? Yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. And and but the, from the point of view of a judge, you know, it's, you've been there. Right. Uh, uh, the the line that really rings home is when this CIA agent did a great job. He rescued all these people, fabulous. And he's in the uh, uh, CIA office, and his superior says, "We're giving you a medal," and he gives him the medal. And then he says, "No, I have to take the medal away, and you can't tell anyone. It's all secret." The agent. <laughs> he says, wait, he says, I'll tell you, if you want applause, join the circus. <laughs> now, judges, judges find that uproariously funny. Which <laughs> 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 says something about Judgment. the joke or the, or the judges. No, the ju no, that's um, it's like. Well, I was supposed to, to echo the introduction, but since you've been introduced twice now, I think I just, I just want to say one of the things that you're going to see today is what an extraordinary, funny, and humane individual Justice Breyer is. Uh, I had occasion, I've know, knew, known him when he was at Harvard, I know, knew him when he was uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, and happily he left to go to the Supreme Court before he could reverse me, which I thought was a really good thing. It was humane. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to begin, I've seen you talk before about the collegiality of the bench, of the court, the Supreme Court, doesn't look that way from where we're sitting. Five to four splits and you'd say, see I've, I've looked up all your previous comments, five to four splits and they're different splits and so it really doesn't say anything dramatic about sort of the, uh, the relationships amongst the judges. But I just want to quote a couple of things. Justice Scalia in the gay marriage case suggested that if he, he would quote, hide my head in a bag if he ever fell to the level of legal reasoning behind the 5-4 decision on same-sex marriage. Um, uh, Alito described the majority as a deep and perhaps irremediable corruption of our legal system's concept of constitutional interpretation. Scalia begins his decision on a death penalty case. Welcome to Groundhog Day. At one point, Justice- That was me, I was the groundhog. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, Justice Roberts says, uh, with respect to senatorial elections, quote, what chump, but really the best one of all, again, is Scalia, uh, that the synonym that in which he, he accused his fellow justices of employing, quote, the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie in doing somersaults of statutory interpretations in their ruling. How can you say that we shouldn't be concerned about profound divisions, divisions in the Supreme Court with this kind of rhetoric? Uh, there, there are divisions. I'm not. I, I didn't say there weren't divisions. Uh, what I want particularly to, to explain, I explained it to the law students and the 10th graders. Uh, probably on the one hand, half of our decisions are unanimous. Uh, about the, 20, the five fours are about 20%, and they're not always the same five and the same four. I mean, a year ago we had about 72, 73 cases, something like that, and I think there were 10 that were five four, and of those, Four were absolutely on nobody's liberal conservative horizon, so maybe six uh, out of 72. All right, now you'll say, well, they're the most important. No, uh, some are, uh, but uh, they're the ones that the journalists think the people, public will be most interested in. Now, that might line up, but it might not. 
Uh, no, so what? That's not your question. Your question was, do we get on personally? And the answer is yes. Uh, when we're in the conference, I say, and I still can say, I've never heard a voice in that conference, the nine of us alone, once or twice a week, I've never heard a voice raised in anger. And I haven't. I've never heard one judge in that room uh, say something really mean or, or uh, even in a joking way, usually, about another. Uh, it doesn't happen. Uh, it's professional. Uh, of course there are disagreements. Why shouldn't there be disagreements? The freedom of speech, First Amendment. Liberty, the 14th. I mean, those words don't explain themselves. And we're the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol, the border, this Constitution does not tell people what to do. It sets borders. It sets borders upon, upon which uh, the government officials cannot go beyond. So read it. You'll see what those borders are. I used to uh, listen when I was young uh, to uh, the radio. Still around, you know. <laughs> we had a program called Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. Um, and Preston was out there, uh, up in the Yukon, wherever that is, and, and he, he would, uh, it's cold, miserable on the frontier. Uh, fine, the cases are hard. Is abortion inside or outside? Uh, is school prayer inside or outside? I mean, there are a lot of difficult cases, but the fact that they're difficult at the border does not mean we're telling people what to do. We're seeing they don't go too far. That's quite different. And in basically, the document provides for decision-making by a democratic process. That's the basis of the first seven articles. All right, those are all obvious things. But so, to go back to your question, you see what we're doing? We're deciding difficult matters about which people reasonably could disagree, and uh, we do it in a professional way. But what about your illustration of your right. point, the rhetoric? Well, I've been with Nino on a lot of different programs, and we get that question. And it's usually as you, it's addressed to both of us. But I say, I answer. And I say, I know you're addressing it to him. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'll say, I'll tell you something about Nino Scalia. Uh, there are people who suffer from a disease. And I call it good writer's disease. And a good writer who has this disease is like that man, a great comedian. You find a phrase that is a felicitous phrase, you can't resist it. <laughs> and, and there it goes, right in the opinion, and you read them, and you said how good those phrases were, and you were saying from a literary point of view, a certain kind of literary point of view, and they are good, and he can't resist. So I said, we all know that. We know what he's doing. <laughs> we don't mind. That's what he's doing. Let him do it. Fine. That's not a good reason to get angry at somebody personally if you're sitting in my seat. Wow. And we well, don't. Would you make the same argument about Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump is not on our court. So we <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was struck uh, in, in uh, Jeff Tubin's book on the court, the, the Nine. He portrayed you as one of the most cheerful and optimistic members of the court. And, uh, and told stories about how you and Clarence Thomas, very different you know, views of, of, of justice, uh, swapping notes uh, are there on the bench while you're listening to cases. So much and, and joking sometimes, so much so that Justice Kennedy had to lean forward. Didn't quite tell you guys to go to the quiet car, but he had to sort of, you know, <laughs> 
he, 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 he couldn't hear. Uh, is, it that, is, is that an accurate portrayal? That's accurate. <laughs> of all you, you grew up at the same time I did. Yes, I did. Uh, and it's strange to us that people feel that political disagreement is yeah. cause for personal disagreement. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, it is strange, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's become yeah. less strange, unfortunately. But, but there we are. And I, I usually say, which is true. I mean, look, I was born in San Francisco. I grew up in the 1950s, you know. You want to see what that was like? Go look at the movie I saw last night, The Mouse That Roared. Or it's a pretty bad movie, actually. But, but, the, the, <laughs> but you would see what the 50s were like. Yeah. The Mad Men doesn't quite catch it. But, the, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the fact is, that's when I grew up. I went to public schools. I went to Stanford. I came here. You know, I've lived most of my life in, in uh, Boston and in this area. And uh, I found people disagree. But nothing to what I found when I got to Washington. <laughs> and the first thing that struck me for a number of years is why don't people all agree with me? Who's so right? Yeah. Well, for a while. But and then I began to think better of it. And my point is, it's a very big country, 315 million people. And of course they think a lot of different things. And it isn't such a terrible thing that people on the Supreme Court have rather different basic philosophical views of the relationship of law to the country, of what this document is basically means, what it's best interpreted as, etc. That isn't a bad thing in a country of 315 million people. Hmm. So all that's in people's minds. I, I and had, it isn't surprising we get on. I, had, I, had a, uh, I was at a panel the other day and I got a question from the audience. And one of the citizens in the audience said, that when you read Supreme Court decisions in which the divisions are so fundamental, so ideological, and so sharp, you begin to wonder whether there's any there there to the document at all. In other words, there's no sense of even being in the same you know, universe with respect to the document and that it undermines the legitimacy of the institution, that you are so far apart on fundamental premises. Are we? It sounds that way. Oh, you mean because of the rhetoric? Well, oh, I see. So you, you don't think the rhetoric doesn't reflect the reality? No. Well, the people disagree. They can express that in different ways. And of course, there are some really quite important issues. But my goodness, this country's had ups and downs. We did have slavery. Mm -hmm. We did have 80 years of racial segregation. We did, and we lived in that world. You know, we were around then. Uh, where, where people were, how were we going to bring these people along to uh, an integrated uh, community where law didn't separate people in accordance with race? It's pretty hard to think of a question as basic as that. And the Supreme Court, both before and after, dived in in different ways. But the country did survive. And you are pledged to, and certainly still are, uh, the notion, and I see it every day, and you saw it, and it's absolutely corny. It's absolutely corny. And it's absolutely true uh, that people have pretty much decided to resolve their differences, even the most important differences, under law. And thank goodness. And when I talk about Bush v. Gore, I say that uh, to the uh, audience. I did say it at Stanford, the papers got wrong. I said that at Stanford, that, that uh, you know, I heard Harry Reid say the most remarkable thing about that case is almost never remarked, despite the fact it was very important, affected a lot of people, and 
half the country thought it was wrong. I thought mm -hmm. it was wrong. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few more than half. I don't, but but the, the, the point is, they thought it was wrong, very wrong. But there weren't guns and riots. And when at Stanford, naturally, and I like here, there will be 20% of the people who are actually thinking, too bad there weren't a few riots. You say, I understand. But before you decide that, go turn on the television set and go see what it's like in countries that make their differences take that form and decide their differences that way. That's why Harry Reid said that this system, uh, which you give a few examples of the rhetoric, please. I mean, okay, I understand that, but, but uh, sure, sure. This is not such a terrible thing, and it is a tremendous asset over the course of American history that after roller coaster, my God, there have been ups and downs, some terrible. And uh, we've come out and so far uh, are in a world where, where people will maybe even express it with a little rhetoric and so forth, but they'll decide their differences under law, and that's what I see in front of me every single working day. It's a great thing. In your book, you've taken, you've gone to a lot of effort here to write a compelling book about how we're entering a new era for the court, how globalization is coming to American justice. And could you make the basic case for that? I, I was particularly interested in the, about the woman from Paraguay and the alien torch statute as an example, but the commercial transactions, treaties, and then I'd like to get to the most controversial area, uh, and that's the death penalty. But could you walk us through the, the thrust of your, uh, of your argument before we get into the death Weaving penalty? Weaving in the olive oil council just as a minor point. There we go. The, um, the point of this is to try to show what? Uh, well, when you hear, perhaps, you hear the words like uh, interdependence, uh, uh, globalization, etc. I, I feel, that have you ever read the Charterhouse of Palmer, which is a great novel? All right, the hero of this novel is out on the battlefield. It's Fabrice Del Dongo. He's a fighter, and he's on the battlefield at Waterloo. And uh, guns are going off, you know, horses running around, smoke, and Napoleon is up there running back and forth. And he says to himself, you know, something very, very important is going on here. And I really don't know what it is. That's how I feel when I see those words, mm -hmm. globalization. Etc. So I thought, well, how concretely, what kind of report can I give to people interested in that so that I can say concretely this interdependence makes a difference to an institution like ours? And the, 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 the word is concrete. That is examples. That is something that when they read it, They'll see, ah, I see, we better get going and start thinking. Uh, now, examples, that's what there are, mostly, in different areas. The one you mentioned, I think, is a good one. It's uh, Dolly Phil Artiga. Dolly Phil Artiga uh, came from Paraguay in the mid-'70s. She came to New York, and uh, there she saw the man from Paraguay uh, who uh, had tortured her brother to death in Paraguay. And she also found a statue was passed in the 1790s, probably to protect us against pirates. She brought a lawsuit against him, and she won. In the United States? Correct, in New York. And she went back to uh, 
Paraguay, and she said, I came to uh, America uh, to look that man in the eye, that torturer, and I came back with so much more. Once she brought that case and won it, lots of other people are in this somewhat similar situation. And the cases began to proliferate. And then we and other courts have to make some pretty tough interpretive decisions. For example, who are today's pirates exactly? For example, what do we do if the lawsuit is to help victims of apartheid and South Africa files a brief, a memoir, uh, a memorandum, which they did, they filed a brief, and they said, we don't want American judges dealing with this problem. We have our own method, mm -hmm. truth and reconciliation. Stay out of it. Well, what, what, what do we do with the statute under those circumstances? Or how do you have interpretations so that if other nations with somewhat similar either statutes or systems also have interpretations, and you don't want them running into each other. You don't want everybody in the world indicting Henry Kissinger. You right. see? Uh, there's got to be a system that works. It has to be uniform. And it has to be at least capable of harmony rather than just chaos. Now, those are interpretive problems. And you cannot deal with those problems in a difficult case like this involving human rights without knowing what other countries are doing, how, and why. All right, that's all. That's the point. And you can turn to commerce. They're there just absolutely familiar. And I think the whole the number of cases involving this kind of thing has grown with leaps and bounds. We had a student, a student at uh, Cornell from Thailand. He discovers that his textbooks, same textbook in English, sells in Thailand at a much lower price. So he tells his uh, family, send me some textbooks. They sent a few. In fact, they sent quite a lot more than a few. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, he sold them. And after a while, uh, the publisher got a little annoyed and brought a lawsuit. And to decide whether he has the right to do that or not, you have to interpret very technical words in the copyright statute. What's interesting to me in this respect is I got a stack of briefs, as we all did, like this. And there were briefs from lawyers all over the world. Uh, there were governments that filed briefs from Asia, from Europe, from all over the place. And I said, well, why are they, what, what is the big thing about this case? I know it's an interesting case, but why, why is it taken on this dimension? And one of the briefs explained that copyright today, of course, is not just about books or about music or about films. It's about automobiles. Automobiles are filled with software. Mm -hmm. Software can be copyrighted, at least here. And uh, go into any store you want. Buy any product you want. Labels. Uh, labels can be copyrighted. And we're told that the answer to this case is going to affect $3.6 trillion worth of commerce. Now, $3.6 trillion worth of commerce, I mean, uh, even with inflation, you know, that's all right. But, but the, 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 you say? And there are many like that. Antitrust, securities, you find quite a few. Or, Go into what is, the, I think, perhaps one of the most difficult. One of the most difficult areas is, is Guantanamo is an example of it. Security. This document gives the security responsibility to the president and to Congress, not to courts. Uh, but the courts do have some responsibility for protecting basic individual rights. So what happens when those two conflict? 
This doesn't tell you the answer. So how do you work these things out? Is it through a process of interpretation of case after case, gradually building up black letter law? What? No. What yes it? and no. I mean, yes, in a sense. Yes, in a sense. And then that cabins where you are uh, trying to, the, the problem in front of you. But typically, the problem in front of you is within this area where it doesn't tell you what to do. I mean, if it did, what's the case doing in the Supreme Court? Is it we're taking cases where different judges have come to different conclusions. So we must be in this area of uncertainty, or why did we take it? And it's different in the different areas. With copyright, you're maybe here. With the area we're talking about, Justice Jackson said this very well in the Steele seizure case. Mm. He said, you look to the cases. You look to what the founders thought about limitations on the inherent power of the president in wartime, Korea. You look to that. What you will discover is as mysterious as Joseph trying to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. <laughs> Quite right. Good writer. Jackson was fabulous. I mean, I can right. go on for a long time, yeah. and if she wants the Olive Oil Commission, I'll ask <laughs> you this question. Yes. How many, which I have, how many organizations do you think there are in the world created by treaty or by executive agreement or by something international that make rules that in practice you, or maybe a business, has to follow. How many think there are? How many think there are more than 50, 100, 300, 500? Anybody? <laughs> 1,000, 2,000. He's read the book. There are 2,000. <laughs> yeah, 2,000. Now, we belong to about 800 of them. Start thinking about them. Uh, Icon. Every day, every day you deal with Icon. Icon is a Los Angeles company. It's associated, it's, in, it's uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, incorporated, uh, but it's not a private corporation, it's a special corporation under California law, and it runs the world, doesn't it? Uh, with the domain names and setting rules for oh, the sure. internet, or uh, International Civil Aviation Authority, or the Bluefin Whale Commission, or even the International Olive Oil Council. There you go. Okay, so uh, what are the status of these rules? And what about the Baal Commission? What is the Bowel Commission? Is our regulators, the SEC, goes and sends civil servants to Baal where they meet with bankers and others and decide what the rules should be in respect to international banking. And of course, they come back and they promulgate those rules so people have a chance to comment. Ha! Yeah, fine, comment. We already made the decision. And, and uh, what, uh, or maybe I might be being unfair to them. I don't want to be unfair. I'm just making that up as a hypothetical example. <laughs> and the, the, but the, the point is this, there, there are thousands and thousands of these. And to what are you going to say, because of the Constitution, that we don't have the power to empower them? Hmm, if that's correct, well then we can't solve the problems of environment, security, trade, health, right. Right. trade, commerce, that is today's world. Oh, so they can do anything? I mean, Congress can delegate, well, what? I mean, Article One says Congress has the power to legislate. That's an old question, but not in this context. It's new in this context. And luckily, this is the audience of people who are going to have to figure out how consistent with and following our, that's where I want you to end up. 
you see. Uh, and in a sense, it's a, a rhetorical, but in a sense not. The sense in which it's rhetorical, a lot of people say, well, we shouldn't pay any attention uh, to the decisions of other, other courts uh, because this is an American constitution and it reflects American values. And I'd say you're quite right to want to preserve American values. Now I want you to read what the problems are. And maybe you'll agree with me that the best way to preserve American values is to try to help deal with these problems. Uh, and that requires a little participation and at least knowledge about what's going on outside our own boundaries. Because if we don't, don't have that, the, the problems will go on without us and so will other people's efforts to have the solution. And we'll just be left out. See, I can end right there. <laughs> because then I can say, now, how we do this? Well, you're gonna figure that one out. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, that was a bridge, though, to what you say is a, sp a small part of, of, of this area. It's a much bigger part is the commercial transactions, the treaty interpretations. Mm -hmm. But the most controversial part of it does involve values, and especially about the death penalty, and very especially, of course, about the Eighth Amendment. That was back, I think it was in the late 50s, that Chief Justice Warren uh, argued that interpreting what's cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment, uh, one had to pay attention to society's evolving standards of decency. Evolving standards of decency, I think that was the phrase. And that seemed, that seemed to be, you could look to all sorts of countries for a long time, and Scalia comes along in the late 80s and goes on the attack and says it's totally inappropriate, it's totally irrelevant to look at what other countries are doing on the death penalty in order to establish what decency should mean in the United States, that that should be an American value. And that has set off fireworks about where we are and how, how and, and you, as, as recently as your dissent here at the end of the court's term, you, you invoked the, the standards of other countries and what they're doing on the death penalty and saying, we ought to reconsider this, it's time to reconsider. So the question, walk us through that argument. There are arguments on, coming from the right saying, shouldn't be doing that, you're interpreting, all, you're bringing all these leftist views from all these lefties and places like Sweden and France and other ways, you know, don't do that. Uh, and you're coming back and saying, no, no, remember Madison, walk us through that. The best way to do that, I was on a panel a few, quite a few years ago, probably with a congressman from Virginia, a very, very nice guy and very intelligent, and he, went and he launched into this exactly mm -hmm. the, the way you did, mm -hmm. you repeated that. And he said, why are you, this is an American constitution, why are we want to go look at other countries and so forth, what their courts do and so forth. So I said, well, you know, uh, uh, I'm a judge. Uh, I have certain problems uh, of law, the Constitution. Since the end of World War II, more and more countries have adopted similar kinds of constitutions, protective of human rights, and they put in independent judiciaries, uh, and uh, they interpret those documents, and, and uh, they have problems more and more like ours. So if a person with a job like mine has a problem like I do, uh, and makes a decision with a document somewhat like mine, why don't I read it? It doesn't bind me. I don't have to follow it. But I mean, I might read it. I thought that was a great argument, right? Yeah. yeah. He said, read it. Just don't cite it in your opinion. <laughs> so I said, well, now look. Uh, 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 after all, uh, there are a lot of new democracies. That was true then, Eastern Europe yeah. and so forth. Their independent judiciaries have uh, few problems sometimes with their legislatures and they want to show they have standing and they should leave, leave them alone and not try to uh, put pressure on them and so forth. And uh, you, we cite them and they cite us and when we cite them they go in there and say, well look, we're part of a system here that's trying to maintain 
independent judges and uh, to protect uh, democratic and human values, and that helps them. So I thought that was a great argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said, uh, write them a letter. Write them a letter. <laughs> said, write them a letter. So I'm thinking, well, just don't put it in the opinion. So I thought, well, what's he, why is this so upsetting to him? And, and then you, I, this is why, he thinks a number of things. He thinks, one, um, he's out there talking to his lefty friends over in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he's thinking. That's right. Uh, and, and he uh, thinks, and that's right. he thinks and, people like Justice Kennedy going off to these conferences and swish places in Europe, and he wants to please his friends, he comes back and Did you say swish places? Swish places. Right. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, very saying, swish but that's China? only part of it. Right. I mean, there's a deeper part. Yeah. And the deeper part, I think, is what I said. Uh, and the deeper part is that he sees this as protecting certain American values. Right. And he's worried about losing those. And losing sovereignty. Correct. And sovereignty, though, stands for something. It's not just an abstract word. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, because I think it's an awfully important point. And uh, what, what my response to that is, here, that's the my motive here. And I want to say, please, look at what the actual problems are. Now, when I wrote about the death penalty, I did put in two pages in which I said what other countries are doing. Right. I put in two pages out of 46. Mm -hmm. My basic point was that the death penalty sometimes is misapplied, innocent person, sometimes, quite often, absolutely arbitrary. There are about 15 pages of study, et cetera. Often and always, after long delays, if it comes about, how many delay? On average, 18 years. Thus, many people are on death row, 50% of them, more than 18 years. 30 years is not uncommon. And the number of executions has fallen, so that there are only perhaps around 20 to 30 this year, whereas you go back five or 10 years, uh, you get a lot more. So that is why I conclude that we should reconsider the issue of constitutionality. Now, in there, there are two pages. If you're persuaded in addition by the two pages, fine. And if you're not, there are other points which may weigh more heavily on your decision. Including the, 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 that many nations, including 95 of the 193 members of the United Nations, have abolished the death penalty. 42 have abolished it. Fine, in and the first thing the other side will say is that more than half the world's population lives in countries where there is a death penalty. Okay? So, well, I say, I say uh, go back and look at the history, whether Madison wanted us to consider where the words are cruel and unusual. Uh, does unusual mean unusual in the world or unusual in the United States? Good, let's go to the library and look. And in five or 10 years, I'll go knock on the door, because I don't think you're going to find the answer to that question. What you're going to find is more controversy. Now that, I think, is part of what was driving the political view that you mentioned. Because the cases where it came up very explicitly were death cases and homosexual rights. And so Joanna, my wife, who is a psychologist, said there is a phenomenon called displacement. You're angry at A, so you blame B. Okay, you're angry at the result in those cases, so let's blame foreign law. I mean, that's what I think it's not a, a reasonable thing to do. What is a reasonable thing to do is where you said that word sovereignty. And after reading the, if somebody will read it, they will see the examples. 
And then they can make up their mind on this point. Why is it so important to us, to him? Why does the note, let's worry about our democracy, our protection of human rights, to the point of tears, why? Well, I put in there at the end, but I learned from my wife when she paid our grandchildren $20 to memorize the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> the six-year-old is up to $13 on <laughs> But look, go read that and try to put yourself in the mind. Why did President Lincoln say he would fight the Civil War, even were no slave freed? He wanted those slaves free. But even, what, did he mean it or was that just rhetoric? I think he might have meant it. Why? Well, you see, four score, I can't do the whole thing, but four score, listen, listen to the words. Four score <laughs> and seven years ago, our, that's what goes back to what? It's 1776. Exactly, because he doesn't want the Constitution. He wants the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. So he can say, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We are now engaged in a great war to see whether any na this nation or any nation so dedicated and so conceived, so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Why is that the first line? The government of the nation, you know, why? Because the founders had created something new. It was an experiment. Democracy and human rights were coming forth in the form of a government where that existed nowhere else on earth. And can it last? We don't know. And that is what Lincoln wants to prove. And my God, we have this same problem today, I think, with the European Union. What I say to them, I mean, we're not, you know, unlike the French, we are not all descendants of Pepin the Short. And unlike the Brits, we are not, in fact, all descendants of King Arthur. Who are we? We are a very motley group of people, everybody under the sun. And so what holds us together? That's part of it. That's part of it. And that's partly the reason you get these very, I have the same strong feelings, you know, and so do you. That's what's holding us together, part of it. And so, of course, we want this experiment to continue. And so the whole point of this thing is to say, please, go look at what concretely this interdependence has meant for our institution, and now make a decision. Tell me. Isn't it true, and I hope the answer will be yes, that you are more likely to succeed and we are more likely to succeed, to continue to succeed with our experiment by paying out a lot of attention, not just a little, to what goes on beyond our shores? Now, that's a question you can't answer without looking at the examples. But I certainly think it's true. Was your dissent on the death penalty case here at the end of the term, an invitation to litigants to bring cases now that it's ripe and bring cases to the, to the courts to resolve the death penalty, and revisit and resolve again death penalty. But that's surely been the interpretation. the interpretation. But what I said in the opinion is I think it is time for the court to reconsider the question of whether the death penalty is consistent with the Constitution. That's what I said. That's what I meant. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not going one inch beyond that. You don't, you don't want to make any news? No. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so people are now, the New York Times came uh, this week, big story, front page. Uh, controversy among litigants, should they be bold and bring a big case or should they try to be incremental? Do you want to wander into that one? Are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, what do you, you think want, the answer well, is? I just, <laughs> but you, exactly. don't, you don't dissent often, right? For you, yeah. uh, your dissents are careful and you, know, you, are, you don't dissent often. This was an extraordinary comment because it's not just dissenting in this case, it really was inviting future cases to come to the court. I you said have a right in to the remain opinion. silent, anything you have to no, say. No, I'm not <laughs> remaining silent. What I said in the opinion is that I think it is time for the court to reconsider the question of the constitutionality of the death penalty. That's what I said. What else is there for me to say? <laughs> <laughs> Nancy, yeah, you I wrote a very powerful piece yesterday in the Boston Globe about penal reform. Well, I, I, um, actually, this is a question I'd like to ask the, the justice. You were, uh, uh, way back in the 80s, the, one of the architects of the sentencing guidelines. And the regime that people are now decrying as a regime of mass incarceration was, at least in part, not totally, a lot of it was mandatory minimums, uh, attributable to very rigid sentencing guidelines. Uh, do you regret what you did, or do you have a different opinion, or do you think that we all uh, got it wrong? That is to say, the judges that were interpreting the guidelines uh, got it wrong? The way that we wrote the guidelines, uh, with, there are two parts. The basic guidelines were written to give punishments that were the average punishments, typical punishments, that were given at that time. We had gone into computer, we had com in the computers uh, 35,000 pre-sentence reports and then actual results. So we could correlate the amount of time that people spent in prison with the circumstances, the factual circumstances about them and their background, which led to their being in prison. So if you had taken the guidelines as they were written at that time, I don't see why the average length of time would have increased. Well, perhaps it has, but there are a lot of causes behind that, including the mandatory minimums, including uh, a lot of legislation that raised sentences. All right. The second thing that was there is that the rule was, uh, judge, if you have a typical case, follow the guidelines. Judge, if you have a tip an atypical case and you have a reason for not following the guidelines, depart. And if you depart, you have to give your reasons, and your reasons can be reviewed by a court of appeals for reasonableness. And we'll see what the courts of appeals say. That was meant to set up a virtuous circle of continuous improvement. Now, as you well know, and you said, there are many, many reasons why uh, uh, that has uh, perhaps uh, that's changed. It hasn't changed, actually, well, on the reason part. It's the mandatory minimum sentences that, that make it tough. And uh, maybe those will change back. Do I have faith in the guidelines? I see there are big problems. I can think of many, including what I call the legal mind to make it an ever more complicated. I 
think that complexity is unfortunate. I think the continuous up, up, up is unfortunate. Uh, I think that isn't a necessary part of the guidelines system. And the virtue of the guidelines was to say to the courts, uh, let's start thinking about what happens to this person. Let's not just think, is the person guilty or innocent? Because 95% of the time, he's going to plead guilty. So for 95% of the cases, let's think beyond that. What's going to happen to him? There was tremendous disuniformity, tremendous. Study after study showed that the sentence was pretty dependent on whom you drew as the judge. That's why they had to have a lottery wheel in the Southern District of New York so that the judge would be selected by a lottery. Indeed, if that wasn't a problem, why did they have a lottery? Study after study showed that. So this was meant to be a movement, not perfection, but a movement in the direction of focus on the individual, have the commission figure out on that basis uh, what's going to happen to the person, and uh, let's move towards uniformity. But the, but if the, I had to do it over again, yeah, I think I'd do it. I think I'd do it. The, the, I understand it's unpopular, and I understand there are a lot of good criticisms of it. But I, I think I'd do it. And, and uh, uh, best criticism, Judge Hill, I, I was trying to explain these things to the judges. You know, they're about as popular as cholera. And I was down in the 11th Circuit, and uh, he was making conversation after dinner. He says, uh, this was in October 1987. You remember that? The stock market had just collapsed. He says, you work on, he says, what did you work on? I told him I did work on uh, airline derailed. I mean, the price is down 50%, but I do hate it. All right, but nonetheless, uh, the price <laughs> is down 50 All right, but in any case, he said, you, you worked on airline dereg, did you? I said, yeah. He says, and now you worked on these sentencing guidelines, <laughs> did you? Yeah. I said, yeah. He says, they didn't just put you in charge of the stock market, he said. <laughs> <laughs> well, but part of the problem was that in order to make sentences more uniform, uh, the standards were the only the most objective standards, and the objective standards turned out to be, according to the commission, what was the quantity of drugs on the one hand, and what was your criminal record. And what I wrote about was all the things that we now learn about, and we knew then were terribly important, like addiction, like the impact of stress on young minds. All of these things were out of the calculus. The courts could have created a law of departure, that would have enabled that mm -hmm. to come into the calculus. But over time, and maybe this is your concept of a legal mind, over time the, the, it got more and more rigid and more and more severe. Well, you can do something about that. Because the I reason I, ca I can verify this, I can verify this. It's like saying, you know, I can verify that the reason the criteria were in 1986 what they were had nothing to do with it being objective. The reason that the criteria were chosen, the ones that we chose, was because those were the ones that showed up in the 36,000 uh, uh, computer, computerized uh, pre-sentence reports as being the ones that judges actually use. All right, That's why they were there. And the, it's still there in the guidelines. You read the introduction. It explains all that. And it says, we're not wedded to this. We're not wedded to it. I'm not on it anymore. But you know perfectly well they're not wedded to it. So go down there. And get your friends and say, let's use some oh, no, of these no, other I'm, things. I'm, that's what I'm, I wasn't wedded to it either. But. Let's go to the floor. Uh, there are microphones here and here. And, and where's my friend Mike Zuckerman? 
Where are you, Mike? Come over here. I, I, we promised him the first question. He helped to prepare me for all of this. He's a, a star student on the Law Review over at the, come up. Yo, I want to ask you, ask, you got a question? Yeah. There are a lot of things. There are a lot. I, I think that's a good question. Uh, you know, I mean, if you, I, I, I mean, I'm, take the example of, of national security problems. This is a problem where courts across the world have tried to protect individual liberty in the face of terrorist threats. Well, different countries have done this in different ways. I mean, Britain has a system pretty complicated. Uh, where uh, if it's a real menace, you know, someone they think is going to throw a bomb, uh, they might lock that person up for a period of time and give him a lawyer, but let the lawyer see the, the information that leads the officials to want to, to uh, lock him up, but not talk to his client about it. Hmm. The court was a little worried about that one, their courts, and they changed it, but not too much. It's very, it's very interesting, very complicated. In Israel, they have a system where um, army says we've got to keep this guy locked up. No lawyer. Why not? Well, he'll say, go and tell my mother I'm fine, and that means blow up the cafe. He says, are we going to say they can never do that? Well, they've worked out something where they say, if you, you can tell the judge privately. Explain that you really have a basis for it. And if he agrees with you, you can do it for a period of hours or a period of days. But you have to come back three days later and say, well, you still need it. And why can't he see the lawyer now? And if you can explain it then, you have to come back sooner and explain it better. You see the idea? Well, I don't know that those are particularly ideas we want or don't want. Uh, what I am saying is that it cannot hurt to examine it and figure it out. And, and there, there has to be. You, you can't. You know, it's not something, if anything is, that's not an area, and probably no area, but certainly not in that one. Are you going to go look up in a horn book what you ought to do when you have people who are, on the one hand, seriously worried about terrorist threats with causes, and on the other hand, an absolute need to protect basic human liberty? Okay? And go, go look at the steel seizure case where they said the president couldn't. And then at the Guantanamo cases, which were all decided in favor of the detainee. And see how hesitant the court is. And see how it wants to decide so little. Why? Because we don't know enough to decide very broadly. Because we're, it's, uh, and you'll see that go back into all the cases that uh, Justice Jackson cited. I mean, it, we're not there at a group of computers. We're, we're, we're there trying to figure out these actual problems in light of the values in the Constitution. The values don't change. The circumstances change, but the values don't change. I don't know if that helps you.
Yes, sir. If you identify yourself and end with a question mark. Uh, so, name's Michael Scott, and I am a student of the moderator here, yeah. uh, Professor Gergen. And so, in our course, we've talked a lot about authenticity and identity as leaders. And I'm thinking of the Supreme Court of 1980 compared to the Supreme Court of 2015. They look vastly different in terms of the number of women, as well as now there is a Latino member on the court. And so I'm curious of if you've seen the identity of the court members sort of drive their deliberation and thought around the decisions that they make. Um, I know there's conversations around uh, contraceptives that's come up. We've had conversations around um, housing and bias in uh, federal housing and things of that nature. There's affirmative action cases coming. And so have you seen sort of a tension between the identity of court members and sort of how they deliberate and consider cases before them? I'm tempted to say both yes and no. I would say no in the sense that whether you are a Latino, whether you are a woman, whether you are uh, an African-American, uh, whether you came from whatever, you have a case in front of you. And these are judges. And they are going to try to get that case right. So it's in that sense, no. Now, I'm from San Francisco, as I said. I have the background I've had. I've had the life that I've had, and that has had a, a, a hand in shaping what I think of the document and the way it relates to people in America and what our country is about, which plays a role in interpreting many of these words. And so have the others. And because life experiences differ, and because no two people are alike, and because we're not a group of computers, of course, you see? So I'm tempted to say absolutely not, and of course. And I will leave it to you to decide what the right answer there is. Yes. Hi, Justice Breyer, thank you for coming. My name is David Clifton, I'm a junior at the college. Um, a few weeks ago, Justice Kennedy came and spoke at the law school and he was asked uh, if he felt that he decided the Citizens United case correctly given the uh, explosion of uh, money in, uh, in uh, campaigns. And so my question to you is, uh, his, his issue was that uh, the government had come before the court and said that we have the right to ban a book about Hillary Clinton if it were written by a corporation within a certain time period. And so although he said that there are problems with campaign finance, he simply could not support banning a book. So my question to you is, do you agree with him that there's something so heinous about banning a book uh, that it could never be done? Uh, and if you do agree, then why did you dissent in the case? Well, um, uh, I'm not in favor of banning books. <laughs> I, I promise you that. The case is a tough case, and more so than people give it credit for. And it's been read for far more than it says. It does say just what you said it said. Th there is no statute that says that uh, uh, individuals giving money independently, not connected with the candidate, and not coordinated with the candidate, I cannot give money? There's no such statute, I don't think. And there's nothing about that in the case of Citizens United. Now, uh, I realize that if you read the newspaper accounts, you won't know that. But you read it and see if I'm not right. And so when he said this is what the case is actually about, he's describing it narrowly, not how it's been taken, often when it's written about. Now, if you want a serious answer to the underlying problem and see why the, the difficulty there, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think on that. 
they're, they're on the side that I was not on. I did dissent. On the other side, on Kennedy's side, there is this. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. All right? You say, well, this is about money. It's not about speech. Really? You try to get your ideas across in a political campaign without money. Hmm. All right. So it's about money as well as about speech. But what about money? Now, the person who said this, I'll tell you at the end of what he said, don't get involved, judge, in the problem of saying how much money is too much money. That was learned hand. Probably America's greatest judge ever. Why did he say that? He said, yes, you don't know as much about it as Congress. They'll outwit you. You know, they'll write themselves into office. Don't get involved. Okay? So I could elaborate on those themes, and I could build up the argument. I don't want to convince you because I'm against it. Now, why am I against it? Well, on the other side of it, I think there is this. What do we do about the average person? Being able to give $20 or even 100 possibly, but surely not $20 million, and believing that that $20 million giver is going to have the influence and he is not, hey, that's a problem. But you say, is that a First Amendment problem? And yeah. I've written that. I say, I think it's a First Amendment problem. Why? Because the purpose of that First Amendment, among other things, is to create a marketplace of ideas. But wait, those words, such a trite word, set of words now. Those words mean something very practical. They mean more than everybody talking about. I want this, I want that, I think this, I think that. They mean a public opinion that can actually have an influence on the policy that emerges from our elective institutions. There has to be a connection. That's why Madison and the others thought there would be such a connection. Now, when you have five people giving $20 million each, or $2 million, or $5 million, or three or something, and you have hundreds of millions giving $10 each, it's the big givers who will cut that connection. And even if it isn't true that they cut the connection, and I think it is, actually, but even if it weren't true, people would think it was true. And as long as they think it is true, there will not be the necessary faith in that institution. Now, there we are, a pretty complicated argument. You see how complicated I had to get in order to dissent? And it is complicated, but I think it's true. And therefore, I think, in fact, even looking at the First Amendment, that Citizens United was wrong. But I can understand the argument on the other side that says, given the First Amendment, we think it was right. So I'm not defending it. I was against it. But like so many questions in front of us, there are actually arguments on both sides of the question. Thank you. Please. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Manur Khan, and I'm a junior at the college. So you talked about human rights and the problems of interpretation that come along with something like that. And I was just curious to know what your thoughts are on the idea of giving um, incumbents, particularly dictators, immunity in order for them to step down. Do you think that's morally legitimate if you put aside the practical arguments of having a fast transition to a more stable government? That, that's what I just better punt on. 
You know, I mean, really, I, I understand the problem, and, and I, I know that that's sort of tied up with the International Criminal Court, particularly. And the International Criminal Court's had a tough time. You know, they've had a tough time because it's, they, they were successful when they went under a different name, uh, the, the Bosnia and Herzegovina, but they had the armies on their side who could find the people they wanted to indict. And uh, they've had a harder time since they've lacked the, the, the force necessary to bring in the people they wanted to indict. But it's still there. It hasn't really done what the enemies of it or the people who were opposed to it feared. It hasn't created chaos, in my opinion. And uh, maybe it'll grow there from the, the germ, tiny, you know, the seed that it is now. Maybe it'll grow. And I don't want to say anything one way or the other because it isn't my responsibility. Uh, but I hope what it stands for will grow. Uh, Nick Bonso, I'm a junior at the college. Uh, my question, apart from all the decisions you've made, is how you've reached uh, the Supreme Court. And what I find particularly strange from an international perspective is the Senate's confirmation process. Just watching videotapes of you know, the Judicial Committee um, asking all these strange questions about your mm. early life and your philosophy, sometimes it can seem as much as a, a show trial. Uh, in the past, in, in some respects, it has been. Uh, what are your reflections on that process of selecting uh, the top levels of the judiciary? Actually, I, I want to jump in. If there's a vacancy in the next couple of years, I want to know whether you think I have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you can answer either of those questions. On the second one, I, I, I would not only be not informed, but I would be the one person you don't want to have on your side. Necessarily. <laughs> uh, my point there is, look, I am not the appointing person. I was the appointed person. And uh, to ask me about the process of appointment is, I usually say, is like asking for the recipe uh, for chicken a la king from the point of view of the chicken. <laughs> so, but, but, all right, I would, did go through that process, and it's perhaps gotten more stressful, but I was pretty stressed. It's not exactly non-stressful to sit on one side of a table, which I hadn't done, and have 17 United States senators on the other side. But I did work in the Senate for Senator Kennedy for a while. I love working there. And I understand the questions they'll ask. They'll ask the questions that they think their constituents want asked. And, uh, if they don't, they're not going to be senators very long. So they are reflecting what they think people want asked. Now, why have such a thing? Well, go back to what I said about the nature of the country. And I am being, as all of us who were confirmed or nominated, we're probably, we're going to a job where we're not elected, and we will have the power and authority to make decisions that affect people in the United States. Now, there are reasons for that. And I think they're pretty good reasons. I won't go into them, but it's a fact. And so here we have, as I knew perfectly well, that whatever the merits of my appointment, if people look at that and they say no because of what they've seen on the television or whatever, it's no. It's a democratic window into a process that will lead to an appointment of a person who will affect the lives of Americans who shouldn't respond to public opinion once that appointment is made. Now, if I, I'd like to think 
that I would have, if it had been no, that I would have had the maturity or obliviousness to accept it. You know, it's easy for me to say that. It worked out all right for me. But, but uh, I, I would think, you know, I, I was delighted after about the first hour, maybe there were 10 million Americans watching this. That's how I was told. And about half of them turned it off. It was so boring. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, great, you know, great. But, but, but that's what it is. And, and, you look, and so you don't like, and if you don't like, the questions that are being asked, the way it's being handled, the way to influence that is through the mind of the elected representative, like so much else that goes on in this country. You know, you say, I just, I'm just naive. Am I? I don't know. I think I say to the students, you know, is, you don't like what's going on. Well, participate. You know, convince others. You want people to agree more and not be at each other's throats? They'll do it. When uh, uh, the electorate really wants it, you don't like the way things are going, look in the mirror, okay? You see? And, and that, that applies to the question you've asked. We have time for two more questions. Yes, sir, and we'll come over here. Hi, um, Justice Breyer, my name's Sam Kessler. I'm a first year at the college. Thanks so much for being mm. here. And my question goes back to the earlier conversation about the Eighth Amendment and the death penalty. And I was curious if you think there's any reliable way for the court to determine evolving standards of human decency other than what we talked about with the whole international discussion. Well, I, I didn't say evolving standards of human decency. And I have not said that in my opinion. And frankly, it's taken on the quality of a slogan. And therefore, I don't want to say that. I can say what I want to say without using words that are going to trigger emotion. And I don't want to. That's just my style. I don't want to do it. I, I want to convince people. And that, that's me. It's nothing of virtue in this, but it's just, you know, I was a teacher for a long time. I, it's your fault, this school. I mean, that's, that's a, but, but I mean, that's what I, that's what I do. I say, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And really, when I'm really annoyed, I don't really do what uh, uh, Nancy said. When I'm really annoyed, what I do is I try to write this, and I think, I think if a child of three read this, they would say, why does anyone disagree with it? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's when I'm furious. And, and, and that's, that's uh, just the way I do it. So I, I, I haven't tried the evolving standards of decency. What I've tried to do instead, in that opinion, is say, look what people thought was going to happen when they said the death penalty was constitutional 40 years ago. And now let's look and see what's actually happened in terms of the arbitrariness or not of the application, in terms of the risk of the innocent person being, being uh, executed, in terms of the delay and the way that that relates to uh, the justifications for having a death penalty in the first place and relates to the, the, the uh, uh, unusual nature or not of the death penalty. You see how I, that, that's, that's my own way of dealing with it. Right. Thank you. Yes, Thank you, Justice Breyer. Um, do you think Dolly Filartiga could bring her claim in the Second Circuit today and what type of alien tort statute case do you think the Supreme Court will be willing to take? She's very up on this. I mean, this is, this is a very good question. And, and it's one I, I don't think, what happened the last time? The this is the Paraguayan case. This, I know, this is the Paraguayan case. Yeah, and it's the alien sure tort statute. Here now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, <coughs> the, the problem of what it applies to is a big problem. 
All right, so we had a case, and four people seem to say <coughs> that it doesn't apply when the bad thing, the torture, whatever, happens abroad. But they didn't say Dolly Phil Ortega's case couldn't be brought. And there were briefs filed in front of us, indeed by Great Britain, one of them, which seemed to say what the majority said, but Dolly Phil Ortega, they said, could bring her case. Nobody wanted to say Dolly Phil Ortega couldn't bring her case. So there's a little sort of thing at the end here, which then I wrote an opinion, which tried to have some other standards, where she clearly could have brought her case on the other standards. And then there's one opinion that says, uh, there we are. Not sure. And so what counts is not what I psychologically think. What counts is what the words are in, on those pieces of paper. And you really are in as good, if not better, position to judge that than I am. <laughs> but that's true. I mean, that's true. You know, you get involved in something, and, and you really want it to be your way. But what counts is the words on the paper, and that's something you have to look at dispassionately. Uh, good question. Terrible answer. <laughs> Best I can do. Closing thoughts. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I, I, it's true. I mean, you know, I've been here. When Zeckhauser and I taught our course on regulation, <laughs> I was thinking. We had, it was a great course. We loved it. We had students who wanted to write papers on things like the regulation of sidewalk elevators in Massachusetts. You know, it was a good paper, too. And he went over and interviewed the people. And they thought it was the Globe Spotlight team. And there we are. But, but uh, uh, so I, I, Kennedy School is, is sort of part of me. It was part of my career. It was part of, I loved it here. And I liked the law school. It was great. And uh, it's very nice to come back here. And, and thank you for your questions. And thank you for listening. Thank you. I, I just want to say in close, you know, we often have a chance to hear music in this city and there's wonderful moments when you hear genius music, but it's such a pleasure to hear how you think. Even if you don't, if you might disagree, but how you think and how you express yourself, how you work your way through problems, there's such an elegance about it. It's just, it, I think a lot of us at a time when institutions are under question, are being questioned, as Nancy said earlier, you give us a lot of faith in the way these institutions are actually run and conducted, and thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.